One of the things that this pandemic has shown us is that we rely on a myriad of institutions in our day-to-day -day lives to support everything we do. Up until this year, I know I took these for granted. They worked quietly in the background, feeding us, healing us, educating us, and ensuring that every aspect of our world functioned seamlessly and without fail. But when we have such an overwhelming shock to our local, state, and national system, as in the case of the coronavirus pandemic, and these institutions falter, it's a wake-up call. It's a reminder that we are inexorably dependent on one another, sometimes in ways that are so minute and intricate that it's kind of hard to see all the connections. Back in middle school science class, I remember learning about how in a biological ecosystem, thousands of species are totally interconnected, so much so that it kind of works like a Jenga tower, this tall structure that's built out of all these small wooden blocks. And as you pull blocks out, the tower gets more and more unstable until it comes crashing down. This was always the argument for why it's dangerous to kill off a species. It's tough to tell to what extent doing so will upset the balance of the ecosystem. After living through this pandemic for almost a year, it's become a lot clearer that our social ecosystem operates in a similar way. When one of the sectors in our economy fails, it can so thoroughly upset a surprisingly careful balance for all of us, and that can have pretty serious consequences. That said, I have gained a deep respect for and curiosity about these institutions that keep us afloat here in our neck of the woods, which is exactly what we're going to explore on this show. In each episode, we're going to take a deep dive into a different local institution and talk with the folks that keep it running. We're going to look at agriculture, our educational system, our waste and recycling programs, rural transportation, mental health, and a whole lot more. Now, I'm certainly no expert on any of this stuff. I'm 22 years old with almost no life qualifications besides an undergrad degree. So my hope is that through these conversations and closer looks at how we operate as a sort of microcosm of the larger American society, we both learn a lot, have a lot of questions, and perhaps discover new ideas about what it means to live in and share a community. For my first stop, I wanted to get a better idea of some of the broader issues our community is facing before getting too far into the weeds on any specific topics. And who better to help me wade in than someone who's been around and involved for, well, a long time. Well, I'm Charlie Barbeauty, and for some people, I'm not the Charlie Barbeauty because that would have been my father. I was born in Liberty, raised in Liberty, went to Liberty Central School, graduated in 1969. I went to uh, State University of New York at Albany, math major, computer science minor, education minor, with plans to be a high school teacher. My father had worked at the furniture store that I retired from in, uh, since 1946 as the manager for another corporation. The corporation wanted to get out of the furniture business, sold it to someone, and then that someone came in that ran it, fired my father. He said he always wanted to be in business for himself, so he went into a garage and he started selling furniture. And since I was the youngest boy, I had two older brothers and my career was uncertain at the time, I came back to Liberty to help him get the business off the ground. And uh, it prospered and uh, we wound up being in business from that time, 1973-74 until uh, 2019. 
Throughout much of Charlie's life and career in Liberty, he was involved in local politics, serving for a number of years as town supervisor. When I asked him what in his view have been some of the biggest changes in our community since he was growing up in the 50s and 60s, he had a unique perspective. The biggest change that I've seen, and it, and it affects everybody's life, because everybody complains about their property taxes being high. The reason that the property taxes are too high is because if you have a property tax structure, that it relies upon commercial properties to pay the bulk of the taxes. If you have a community that's mostly residential, their taxes are going to be extremely high because you still have water, sewer, and all infrastructure, roads to plow, and nobody's ever come to grips with, well, what do we do now that we've lost the commercial properties? Just as an example, my father was a village trustee back in the 70s in Liberty. And at that time, half the assessed value of the town of Liberty was located in the village of Liberty. And half of the property tax assessments of the village of Liberty were more than half were on Main Street. And that burden has shifted because those properties are now not as profitable and not, not a lot of them don't have going concerns in them. So they, you know, so that's the struggle we have here, how to provide the services to the people with uh, and an affordable tax rate that everyone can afford to live here. But, Charlie says, thanks to an influx of immigrants and, more recently, folks moving up from New York City to escape the coronavirus pandemic, there's a larger base of people for taxes to be distributed across, likely making life up here more affordable in the coming years. But they've taken some real dilapidated buildings and uh, put roofs on them, put storm windows on them, making a commitment to live here in Liberty. They like Liberty because of the closeness and the proximity. They can walk to different things. They can walk the kids to school. The school system is still attractive for a lot of, of these people. And it's just a wonderful thing to see because when they put that roof on that house and they paint that house, it preserves the assessed value of that house, which helps everybody in keeping our taxes affordable. As someone who lives in Sullivan County, I've noticed that some of our communities have experienced pretty significant resurgences in the last decade or so. Narrowsburg and Livingston Manor come to mind. In other areas though, like Liberty and Monticello, there are still tons of empty storefronts up and down Main Street. So why does this happen? Why do we see the town off exit 96 on Route 17 get a makeover while exit 99 is stuck in a recession? Charlie says that while it does have to do with a few major investors setting up shop in places like Narrowsburg and Manor, the answer is also in large part due to how the different towns were organized in their heyday. Liberty and Monticello were both retail hubs in the Borscht Belt era. Selling stuff in downtown, other than a family dollar store, which gives you what the things you need to, you know, your toilet paper and your tissues and all that stuff, uh, is over. I mean, people don't buy stuff in stores. They just the, the thing that people don't understand is that in 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 a, in a furniture store or any business, if if you lose five to six percent of your business to the internet, only five or six percent. You don't have to lose the whole thing. Just five or six percent. Um, there's no reason for you to be in business anymore because that five or six percent was the part that the owners or the or the partners in the business were that was what was there then when you sell something for a hundred dollars it might be five dollars for the for the people that that are investors in that business so if you lose that five percent and cut you back down 
you know, you don't get to the gravy until all your expenses are paid. So after all your expenses are paid, that's the 5%. And it, that part of the business is now gone. It's gone for retail uh, stuff. You watch on Main Street and Main Street's Liberty and, and everywhere, it's changing over to service businesses, food services, uh, yoga studios, uh, fitness centers, uh, anything that you, hair, hair, hairdressers, barbershops, services that you can't get in, on the internet. So th- th- that's my prediction, and I think everybody's going to see it come. Leading up to my conversation with Charlie, I had been thinking a lot about the need for improved public transportation here in Sullivan County, which, by the way, is a topic we'll do an episode on down the road, no pun intended. But Charlie points out that in order to more effectively jumpstart a stronger business sector in the region, we need to tackle a different type of infrastructure first, broadband. Our, our numbers compare to Appalachia. Appalachia you know, the, the poverty numbers and the rural poverty numbers to Appalachia. Now, if you remember Franklin Roosevelt, in those, the Tennessee Valley Authority, they had no electricity in many, many areas in the country. And it took a federal commitment to the T- Tennessee Valley Authority to create the dams and the rivers. And, and that, that made a big difference and a big change down there. Once they had electricity, they were no longer in the, in the, in the 19th century. They were in the 20th century. And that's a that was a huge government program that was came about because we needed to make work for people because they didn't have work. And uh, I'm thinking if if we are to de-urbanize and have more people live in the country, we're going to have to figure out ways to make country living available for for people by having things as transportation and and uh, internet. Let's let's not even get to transportation now. I mean, one of uh, Congressman Delgado's main things was helping farmers and getting some internet to, you know, some form of decent internet to everyone in our region. And that's not, that hasn't happened in New York state. I mean, you should, you got to make the big corporations. If you're going to want the cream, you got to take the the rest of the, of the, of the gallon of milk besides the cream. You, you've got to give the, to everybody. Even if you got to, you got to run some things at a loss because you're doing it. And uh, that's what, you know, internet's going to come before people get in cars to drive to work. Finally, I asked Charlie about maybe the most pressing issue our community is facing right now, the coronavirus pandemic. His advice to the community is simple. It's tough to control this thing, so it's that much more important that we do every little thing we can to keep each other safe. You know, the only... I I, I wrote out a Christmas letter this year. We always do to people on my Christmas... Uh, card list. And I said, the one thing you, you can do when you wear a mask, you're telling other people that you love them. And I put that in my Christmas letter, because how can, how can you go out without a mask when you know that as of now, right this minute, that's about the only thing that you can actually do to help this condition. I mean, in my family, we're doing all kinds of isolation. I'm in, I'm in liberty because I went to the doctor and I went to the eye doctor this week. And now I'm 14 days. I'm not going to go back to my bubble in the lake house for the, to be with the family. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to isolate myself. I mean, when something happens like this, you have to do all you can do. And the, that's the only thing I can do right now is wear a mask, isolate myself if I'm exposed to other people. I mean, I have my groceries delivered. I'm having all kinds of, you know, staying away from touching people, being around people. It's hard. It's impossibly hard. 
but we've got to do it. It's and it, you know, I sing in the chorus. No, no chorus last year. I play in the Calhoun Center Band. No Calhoun Center Band. I'm playing the tuba. I'm going to blow all those virus stuff out there from a tuba. I mean, but that's all you can do. There's nothing else that we can do. And other than what we've done, which is hopefully elect new leadership that's going to go in a new direction, and, and uh, we're going to see more progress being made.